Welcome to the Jason Tim Podcast. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your day to come out and talk some hoops with me and Tommy. Tommy, how you doing, man? Thanks for joining me today. Doing good, man. Uh, just recovering from the holidays a little bit. Um, yeah, excited to talk some basketball. I'm glad the NBA is back in full swing. Um, been an interesting start to the season, so I'm ready to talk about all of it. Yeah, man, I had to recover from the holidays, too. I had a disappointing moment when I got on the scale. I talked about this a little bit on my last podcast. My mom's a really good cook, and I went completely out of control and got up to 231, which is about 11 pounds more than I would like to be. Um, but I uh, think that's, that's why New Year's resolutions are there, so you can get over it. Um, I haven't even weighed myself. I haven't even stepped on the scale. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to give myself a couple weeks of workout and see where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, first of all, as you guys have probably noticed, Tommy's been on often. And uh, my, my format that I'm hoping to shoot for here, at least for the first part of the season, is I'll have my more Lakers-focused podcast where, where I'll have my Laker guys come on. Um, you, you guys have met some of them, Vinay and Raj, and I'm hoping to have uh, Jason Maples on here in the next couple of weeks. And then I have, uh, hope to have some podcasts more in this format where we talk about the rest of the league. And, and Tommy, for the meantime, is going to be joining me for those. Um, I really appreciate his perspective, and he's fun, and he's entertaining, and he's not afraid to say anything uh, crazy. But at the same time, he believes it, which is all that really matters. And, uh, uh, and it gives, uh, it gives us some good content. So, uh, we're going to talk about the Warriors to start, obviously on account of everything that's happened the last couple of days. Um, uh, that said, before we get started, I do want to say something that just in defense of Tommy and I for a second, cause you know, both of us have caught some crap over the last couple of days for observations that we've made. And I want to put emphasis on the word observations because these weren't predictions or hoping on someone's downfall or slander or anything along those lines. Tommy made an observation that over the last three seasons in a time spanning about 20 games or so that Steph hadn't been shooting well. And he was also observing that he's a shorter guard who is in his, he's 32 years old. And all he was saying was, I hope this isn't a sign that he's slowing down. There was no, uh, there was no hope for his downfall. There wasn't anything negative there. And then for me, same exact thing. I'm not a Steph fan or a Warriors fan, but I do want them to be good. I, I want them to, I, if it were up to me, they'd play in the Western Conference Finals against the Lakers. Would I be rooting for the Lakers? Yeah, but I want them to be good because it's better for the league and I'm a basketball fan. All I pointed out after five games was that they were the worst team in the league. And that wasn't, again, that wasn't a, uh, you know, Warriors are trash, you know, they suck. It was it was a it was it was based on evidence. Statistically speaking, they had been outscored more than any team in the entire league. Literally, they were at the bottom. And I was just saying, this isn't a oh we need Steph to get better, or, oh we need you know Steve Kerr to be better, or we need Draymond back. It was we need everything to change. We literally need every single thing on the roster, every single player, every single person on the staff to be better. And it, because they were that bad, and that was all I was pointing out. And as it turned out, the last couple games. Everything has been better. Um, and so we're going to talk about that today, today. And we're going to talk about, you know, what from that it projects to continue to be better for the rest of the season and what their realistic goals are for the year. But I just think it's important to understand that, you know, Tommy and I, we're not we're not out here just trolling people. We're, we're, we're talking about basketball. And the right way to talk about basketball, in my opinion, is to respond to information. And these were pieces of information that we got and we made observations and some people got upset. Some people rubbed it in our face. And you know what? We're actually stoked and happy that this is going the way that it's going. And I hope that people can kind of see past that and, and understand where we're coming from. 
Um, on that note, Tommy, tell me what you think about uh, what Steph did over the last couple of days. So uh, to start, to kind of piggyback off your, your general point, I'm a fan of the game of basketball before anything else, right? I, I fell in love with the game of basketball. I didn't fall in love with the game because of any one player or any one thing. I love ba- I've loved basketball as long as I can remember. So when I see new information, like you're pointing at, I try to analyze that as honestly as possible. And the way Twitter operates, some people aren't going to like that, right? Especially because I'm part of Warriors Twitter, and I am a huge Steph Curry fan. I'm wearing a Steph Curry Davidson jersey right now. I own tons of Warriors World gear. I buy stuff from him all the time. I bought new stuff from Sheed yesterday. But I was trying to be honest with what I was seeing. And look, I was wrong. I was wrong. My point the whole time was to hold Steph Curry to the standard of Steph Curry, which is one of the three best players in the league since 2014. And some of the stuff I had seen was telling, you, telling me, okay, he still might be a top 10 guy. He still might be top eight, but I don't know if he's top three anymore. And if he isn't top three, then they probably don't have a title in their future unless they make some big trade. Now, if he plays like he did in the second half against Chicago, if he plays like he did against the Pistons, and then not in the first Portland game, but the, obviously the 62-point explosion, and then how he played last night, he's still a top three player in the league. If he can get to that level consistently against the best competition, he is still one of the best three players in the league. Um, and, and I think what we've seen is um, a shift, not only in, in Kerr's scheme, where he is trying to get Steph going downhill more off pick and roll. He's simplifying their actions. He's doing some simple horn stuff where they're getting a guy coming off Steph, and now Steph's getting a down screen. He's working up a dribble handoff or a curl. Really simple stuff to just get him the ball in spots where he likes it. But it's also been a shift in mentality from Steph. Um, Kevin O'Connor wrote an article, I believe it was right after his 62-point game. Um, before that 62-point game, Steph had been touching the ball 31 times per 36 minutes in the half court, which was the lowest rate since Mark Jackson was the head coach. Um, and then in his 62-point game, he touched it 88 times in total, 44 times in the half court, and possessed the ball for six and a half minutes um, total, which is about in line with his 2015-16 unanimous MVP season. And the biggest difference that I saw was instead of when he would get a switch against kind of a bigger wing or a big man or a guy who can basically take off the dribble, a Robert Covington, a Marvin Bagley, guys like that, Early in the season when he was getting those switches against the Bucks or the Nets, he was getting off the ball and he was trying to do all of his off-ball stuff, cut, find, find a curl, find a fade, and it just wasn't working because he didn't have the teammates to find, find him in those spots. But what he started doing is, okay, I have these guys on an island. I'm just going to go at him. I'm going to go to my step back. I'm going to try to get to the rim. I'm going to get to my floater game. I'm going to get to the mid-range a little bit. And he's really – it's been a shift in his mentality too. And I think my biggest reason for concern was I didn't see him doing that enough. And this team needs that. Um, and he's been much, much more willing to do that, and he's going to have to keep that mentality all year. Uh, the, the biggest thing, and Sam Espendiar reports this all the time, it, it's health. If he can stay healthy and do this for the entire year, they're going to be, I still think, one of the better teams in the West come playoff time. And to, to go into more general Warrior stuff, a lot of that comes down to Draymond Green. I was, I was a little bit worried about Steph to start the year, and I still thought he was a top 10 guy. I was, like I said, I was worried about him being top three. But I knew once Draymond came back, everything was going to be basically fine. But I've said this a couple times now. When teams in the NBA don't have their second best player, they generally look like crap. If you're the Lakers, that might not be true. If you're the Bucs, uh, if you're the Nets, maybe. But if, for the most part, if you don't have your second best guy, you're going to look like a bad team most of the time. Draymond Green, for all of his warts, is their second best player. He's shooting 13% from the field right now, and he is still their second best player. He is one of the most impactful players without scoring that I've ever seen in my entire life. 
And what he does is he relieves step up playmaking duties. And he is, I still think, probably the best defender in the NBA. And the only other guy that would have an argument is Anthony Davis. Everything makes more sense when Draymond is on the floor. Kelly Oubre is now just a play finisher. Andrew Wiggins has less on his plate. Um, any of the other secondary or tertiary guys have less on their plate. I thought this team would be under 500 for the first 15 to 20 games. With how good they've looked the last two games, they might be better than that 15 to 20 games in. They have a tough seven-game stretch coming up, and I do want to see how Steph looks against some of the better defenses in the league because for as great as he was, those teams are bad defenses. Portland and Sacramento are two of the worst defenses in the league. If yeah, you and I have similar feelings about how bad Portland is. Portland, like I said a couple of weeks ago, they had one of the most off, overrated offseasons in recent memory. Hmm. If Steph still does look really, really good against the Clippers and the Lakers, for the most part, then I'm all in on this team. I, I don't think no one would really scare me in a playoff series besides the Lakers and the Clippers, and that would be it. Um, De- Denver, we'll talk about them later, but they have their own warts. Uh, Phoenix is a really good team. I do really like Phoenix. Uh, but in terms of a playoff series, they, the Warriors would still have the best player on the floor, and Draymond is still one of the most impactful guys in the league. So moving forward, as long as Steph keeps being the guy that we've seen the last week and a half, they're going to be a damn good team. They're going to be one of the better teams in the West, as long as Draymond and him stay healthy. Yeah, so when it comes to the the, the Warriors, uh, so we'll start. We'll, let's start with the team in general here. So like when it when it comes to the Warriors and what I project for them for the rest of the year, which again ag- again is just an observation based you know prediction. It's not me you know making some sweeping declaration. And and one of the other crazy things is like being in the business of trying to make predictions in sports is just insanity. Like sport, if sports were were more predictable than they are, they'd be less entertaining. There's a professional sports gambler, as Colin Coward always says, a professional sports uh, gambler is only right 55% of the time. So the point being like we're, we're making guesses, but we could very well be wrong and we'll just respond as information comes. I'm okay with being wrong. I, yeah. Once I started do it, once I started tweeting more about basketball, I accepted the fact that I'm going to be wrong a lot of the times. It, it's just, it's a reality of the situation. And I'm not going to sit here and be hard at it and double down when I'm wrong. I'm more than willing to admit it. Exactly. And, and that's what bothers me because the people that are in your mentions always being, you know, super, uh, uh, you know, uh, crazy in your face about the mistakes you've made. They've made just as many the stupid, you know, fan based predictions in their own time. But anyway, so, you know, but coming into that uh, two game or uh, coming into that second game against Portland was when they had dropped to 30th in the league in net rating. All I pointed out was, hey, you know, in the Western conference, given the amount of talent you have to go through on a daily basis, it's going to be extremely difficult for you to, to win enough games to, uh, to, to really compete. And especially with the way that the, the playoff structure is. And, uh, uh, you know, essentially like, even if you fall into that 11 to 14 range, the guys that are on the fringe of the playoffs trying to fight into that 10th spot for the play-in, you're still dealing with teams like, like New Orleans and Sacramento and San Antonio teams that, you know, aren't great teams, but they're teams that have a decent amount of talent. And if you don't bring a winning formula to against them, you'll, you're going to get beat. And all of those teams have impressive wins so far this season, you know, like the, the New Orleans has beat, you know, Toronto a few times and, and Sacramento's had a couple of impressive wins. So the, the point being, uh, like I think Sacramento was the, the only team to beat Phoenix in the first five games of the season. So the point being is like it's 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 really hard to win games in the NBA, and the Warriors looked like they were the worst team in the league. Now, after what happened in the last two games, where they 
you know, the, the first game was a little sketchy against Portland because it required this unbelievable performance by Steph Curry, and they didn't defend particularly well. Their offensive rating and their defensive rating in that game was about a 115, which is pretty yep. bad. The o rating was like 128, though, but that's not going to happen. Yeah, every exactly. going for 62. And then last night against Sacramento, they played a, a team that, you know, there's a little bit of a backstory there. They're kind of unraveling behind the scenes and they're kind of there's some sort of weird like high school esque mutiny going on where all the parents are getting involved. It's really what is weird. happening with Marvin Bagley. Does anybody even really know? I don't know, but it's, it's a <laughs> yeah. weird thing. It's a weird thing. It's a weird thing going on there. And quite frankly, like. Like uh, it was an impressive win because they defended extremely well that game and they scored at will on the other end. They were able to rest their starters in the fourth quarter. That was all great. They, in the last two games, they have absolutely flipped the script, but it was, it's important to acknowledge that two nights prior against Portland, they got killed. And there is some data that has come out. Mark Stein was talking about that this morning, that teams in these baseball series that have performed really poorly in that second night and then, uh, and then also, you know, we just talked about Sacramento's issue. So here's the question. You know, if you, if you ask me right now what I'm thinking, I'm thinking, well, there's no question now that they can at, very, at the very least be in that play-in stretch, in that 7 to 10 seed area. They have proven that there's enough talent on the roster and that Steph and Draymond and Kerr are good enough, the three of them with their winning pedigree and what they bring to the table, to get into that zone. However... They have uh, uh, two games against Clippers coming up. They play the Lakers. They play the Suns. They play the Nuggets. They play the Pacers. It is very possible, not it, it, not entirely unlikely, that they could go one and six in the next seven games. They could go like if they went zero and seven, it would be shocking, but it would just mean that like like the the Warriors right now have the twenty fourth net rating in the league. Vegas is probably going to have them as an underdog in a lot of these games. They might. They might have a, a one. They might be a one point favorite against the Pacers, maybe, maybe against the Nuggets. They have Toronto too. Toronto's really struggled to start the year, so yeah, they'll probably be a favorite against Toronto. Yeah, and they'll be a favorite against Toronto. But like you're talking about, you're literally talking about a stretch here where they could very easily, at the end of it, be what you know, five and ten, or is exactly. it six and nine, or whatever it is they could be. So the point is, is like it, the, the, with the that's the nature of this schedule. And, and that is why, you know, uh, when Vegas put out their win totals to start the season, all of these teams, like even the best teams in the league, were predicted to be at like a 55-win pace and not a 60-win pace because Vegas just understood the night-in and night-out schedule in this year's NBA season is going to be insane. And the same goes for the Eastern Conference. There's just a lot of talent in the league right now, and none of the really good teams are really all that good. Yep. And, and so from, from, from that standpoint, what I would say is like I, have a, I always say – be careful of regular season victory laps because you can be humbled extremely fast. And the example I'd give you is last year or two years ago when Rajon Rondo made that game winning buzzer beater in Boston for the Lakers. And everybody was talking about how I think it was their first game back after the all-star break or it was right before the all-star break or something like that. And everyone was talking about how this was what was going to turn things around. LeBron is back. You know, they just made this game winner. Everything's good. But people forgot that, like, you know, okay, Lonzo Ball's out, so they actually have, like, almost no talent in the backcourt and no non-LeBron basket creation, and they're still god-awful at the center position. So they're still just a bad basketball team. And then what do you know? For the next month and a half, they just sucked. And then as soon as Brandon Ingram went down, they became literally one of the least talented teams in the league, and they just got killed every night. So the point is, is, like, like this is a long road ahead. Steph has to stay healthy. All these guys got to keep playing better. You know, Draymond's at an age where he's not exactly the most reliable guy physically in the world. It could go south quickly. 
And so like uh, for the people that are talking reckless, understand it's a marathon, not a sprint. This is good news. It shows what they can be, but there's a long way to go. Absolutely. And I'm with you on all of those things. I'm, I'm assuming, let's assume relatively good health. We get 65 step in Draymond games or so. These guys are going to keep improving. They have one of the newest rosters in the league in terms of the talent they're integrating with Stephen Draymond and guys they've had in the past. But Stephen Draymond have basically played with none of these guys before, at least not in important games. So this team is going to continue to get better. There is talent on the roster, and they were shooting historically bad to start the season. Not just Kelly Oubre, who literally has the worst three-point shooting start considering a minimum number of attempts in NBA history. Um, by the numbers, the worst start ever. And that's a guy who shot 35% on five to six attempts a game last season. So it, it's there where he can shoot mid to His low. His bounce back was predictable. And, exactly. I, and I talked about that in the last podcast. I shared a personal story. Like yeah. Ubre, Ubre was a textbook case of a role player shoved into a new role that kind of psyched him out a little bit. And he was yep. inevitably going to start making shots. Contract, contract year. He mm. knows he's on a kind of a national stage for maybe really the first time in his career. He knows there's being a lot expected of him, especially because they paid $80 million in luxury tax to bring him in. Um, so he, he knew there was a lot on his plate, but the regression to the mean was expected. Mm. Through the first four games, I want to say, and uh, my guy Baltez put this out on Twitter um, a couple days ago, the Warriors were underperforming their, their shot expectation based on you know the shots they were getting by 25 points a game. Literally 25 points a game. So it, it things couldn't have gotten worse. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing really good – I think they're up to around two or three below uh, points below their shot expectation now. So they're coming back. They're regressing to the mean basically. Um, Wiggins has been secretly really good the last five games. He still has his Andrew Wiggins moments where he's taking terrible 18-footers with you know 18 seconds on the shot clock. But that's just kind of the expectation at this point. His playmaking has really started to flash like I, like I expected it to before the year. Um, getting he's Draymond defending. back – He's, def- he's defending probably more consistently than I've ever seen him defend, at least in terms of effort. He still makes some boneheaded mistakes um, or, or he'll be lax some possessions, but he's made more chase down plays where he's, you know, getting a steal from behind or getting a block from behind than I think I've ever seen it for like a full season in his entire career, just through these first seven or eight games. Um, he's defending with energy. He's playing with energy. He's actually finding people. He's finding three point shooters all over the floor. It's just a matter of whether they can start making more of those. Um, Ubre obviously has had a terrible start offensively, but I've really liked his point of attack defense. And with Draymond back, he's actually a really good weak side rim protector. Um, he, he's been coming over and contesting shots, changing shots, getting blocks from the weak side. Um, and those guys really, really thrive with Draymond. This, it's similar to Iguodala or Durant in years past. Those long athletic wings, if you put those guys around Draymond, he's going to cover up so many mistakes that they can just kind of come over and be difference makers and get deflections. Wiseman is obviously a rookie, and he still has a lot of rookie moments. But if I was putting a big man next to any person in the NBA, I would want it to be Draymond Green, right? If you're putting a young big man who has a lot to learn about the game just in terms of feel and uh, positioning and, and everything of that nature, there is no better person than Draymond Green. He's he's the best teacher at that. So I, I'm still – I mean, I'm still very optimistic on this team's ceiling. And, and it will take a lot to go right. Don't get me wrong. They still need more shooting. They probably, with Marquise Chris up for three months, they will probably need another big body at some point because um, Kevon Looney has been not great to start the season. He looks even slower than he has in the past, which I didn't think was physically possible, but he actually is slower now than he was in 2019. So they're probably going to need at least one more big man body. I hope they can get some shooting near the deadline or on the buyout market because th- both those things are needed. 
if they can do that, like I said, I, I still think this team has a chance to be really, really good. But it will take a lot of things going right, and it will take the help of, obviously, Stephen Draymond. If either one of those guys goes down, it all goes in the tank. Yeah, we talked about that a lot before the season. Health is going to be such an important thing for them because they just they literally won't be able to survive it. And it's it comes down to their two biggest weaknesses, in my opinion, which is because I actually do think that Ubre and Wiggins are going to be fine wings. They're they're not going to be, you know, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard or Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, but they don't need them to be because of what, you know, uh, Draymond and Steph bring to the table. But they're good, serviceable wings. They won't be they won't be hemorrhaging points on both ends in those matchups. They'll be able to hold their own. So where I worry about them is, you know, like I really don't think like as I am super stoked about Wiseman and you should be if you're a Warriors fan, too. That dude's that dude's an all star in the making that be excited. He's a freak. Yes, but we're we're years away from that, and he's going to get absolutely eaten alive by Anthony Davis and by Nikola Jokic and all of the centers in the league. He's not a he's not a winning NBA player right now. He'll help you in this regular season in spot matchups, but he's not that guy yet. So they they have a legitimate weakness in the front court after Draymond Green, and they have a legitimate weakness in overall playmaking after Steph Curry and Draymond Green. And so as a result of that, if either of them go down for any extensive stretch of the season, it's just going to be really hard for them to win games. And and it also worries me in the case of like back-to-backs and three games and four nights and things along those lines, if they ever have to rest either of them, it's hard to imagine a scenario where they can realistically compete um, replacing what they have to do night to night to win. It's very, very similar but it's very, very similar to, to the 2018 Cavs. The beauty of it was is LeBron played 82 games. And so that's that's kind of what you need um, out of these two guys. Is for that. I was literally thinking about that as we were going into the game last night. Like, okay, Steph drops 62. He's fatigued. It's a back-to-back. And he's got to guard Deer and Fox and, and all of these other uh, really quick, uh, you know, Buddy Heal. Well, I think Buddy Heal yeah. was out. But Heal yeah, uh, played Halliburton was out. He did play Halliburton was out. That's right. So uh, anyway, like, uh, like I remember sitting there thinking like, I wonder if Steph will rest and it's like, they can't rest him. <laughs> like no, if no. they rest him, they might as well forfeit the game. They, they yeah. literally can't win without him as a result of the way that this roster came. Together. And I think, and I think that's the reason for him putting on the size as much as I kind of criticize that. I think mm-hmm. some of the added size is to, to take the pounding because he knew he's, he knew he was going to get beat up this year, basically. Mm-hmm. And he actually, I was surprised by how spry he looked last night because it was the second night of a back-to-back. And he scored 62 points and had a ton of output. He shot 19 free throws in that first game of the back-to-back. And that's the most he's ever shot in his career. So I was actually expecting him to maybe look a little bit tired. But he looked more spry than, he, than I thought he would. So mm-hmm. hopefully that added size does help him stay a little bit healthier through the regular season because they're going to need they need at least 65 games from him because if he misses mm-hmm. seven games they're winning one or two at absolute most and they're probably losing all seven. Mm-hmm. And so the last thing I want to talk about with the Warriors is uh is Steph Curry uh himself and the way that he's been playing because I, I want to make a point that I think is important because there's a lot of talk about, you know, Steph Curry losing a step. And you and I have t- talked a little bit about this uh directly with each other. And you know, this is the example that I want to give because uh, I think LeBron actually is a, is a perfect example of how uh, of a point that I have constantly made about the NBA, which is that or about basketball in general, which is that, you know, as you get into your 30s, there's like a transition that takes place mentally in your game. And so, for instance, I'm a huge LeBron James fan. I absolutely think LeBron James is the best player in the world right now. That said, LeBron has literally his effective field goal percentage has literally dropped every single season since 2017, yep. 2017, 18, 
19, 20, 21. So five consecutive, this is the fifth consecutive season where his efficiency is dropping. And that doesn't mean he's becoming a worse basketball player necessarily. I, I would argue he's as good now as he was in 2017, 2018, but there's a transition taking place. He is becoming less effective as a scorer necessarily in specific matchups. He's not getting the same separation. He's not the same, you know, physical freak that he was, but he's so much smarter than he used to be And his ability to win basketball games, which is a combination of all these different factors involving leadership and, and like controlling the flow of a game, passing ability, like all of these different little intricacies of basketball. He's so much better at now that even though he's not scoring at the same efficient clip, He's actually as effective, if not more effective, as a winner now than he was in the past. And so I feel the same way about Steph Curry. When I watch him play, I don't feel like he's getting the same separation that he did in 2016. That's just my opinion. That said, I think Steph is every bit as good now, if not better, than he was in 2016. Because I don't think 2020 Steph Curry lets the 2016 finals slip away. I think he's just a better winner. I think he understands different possessions that are pivotal in different games and how it can swing a series. And and I and, I, and just in general, how to build a winning culture and all those different things. Like that, like He is every bit as good now as he ever has been. Now, there will be a point where the physical slips too far and he actually does begin to slip. And the same goes for LeBron. I don't think we're there with either guy, but like, here's, I told you in the, in, in the direct message yesterday that I thought that Steph Curry might finish the season around 37, 38% from three. And I really do think that just by virtue of the fact that his shot quality this year is going to be lower than it has been. Cause he doesn't have clay taking as much attention off of him. And then I also think that he's slowing down a little bit. And then, then there's a high volume thing just by virtue of the way the team is built. He's going to have to be more aggressive. But if Steph Curry drops to 38% from three, I don't think that means he's he's on the back end of the slope. I think that's just a, a, a product of circumstance. And I would believe that the makes that are in that 38% would be more impactful because he would be aggressive at different moments of the game than he used to be. And he would pick his spots a little bit better and, and, and all of these different factors that lead to winning basketball games. So I do, I do think that like uh, it's important to monitor as we're, as we're looking at like highlight tapes of, of what Steph looks like as a player, that that's not the only thing he's that, that that's not the only thing to track in terms of how good he is as a player right now. Yeah. And I mean, that was the reason for a lot of my skepticism, right? Is, is less space on particularly dribble moves, dribble sequences where he's freeing himself for his step back or his crossover into his threes. Now it has looked better than it has probably in a long time. um, These last three or four games. And a lot of this might have been virtue of not having to do it anymore. But a lot of my concern was based on, okay, his, his shot profile has actually flipped on his head compared to 15-16, right? 15-16, like 60% of his threes or so were unassisted versus 40% being assisted. By 18-19, that had flipped exactly. 60% were now assisted and 40% were now unassisted. Now, was that a product of playing next to Kevin Durant and having to share more possessions and working more off ball so KD can have the ball more? Yeah, absolutely. But I also thought that was a product of him losing a half step as, as a guy with the ball and maybe his release being slightly slower because he's not 27 and is ab- at his absolute physical peak anymore. Now, what he's shown the last four games have made me very hopeful for, you know, maybe he still is that guy off the dribble. Um, but he does seem a lot of the stuff you're pointing to with winning basketball and him not letting like the 2016 finals slip away and just being a, in general, a better decision maker, a more conscious decision maker. Part of what made Steph Curry so special was his recklessness. 
right? Early in his career, it was how reckless his shot selection was and how scared defenses were anytime he had the ball. And they still are. Don't get me wrong. They absolutely still are. But there are moments where he'll step back and I think, oh, he has space for a shot and he doesn't quite shoot it. Now, is that him just searching for a better shot? Is that him not trusting his step back quite as much because he hasn't done it as much or because his release isn't quite as quick, meaning he's going from the absolute quickest release of all time to maybe just one of the quicker releases of all time. Once again, people aren't understanding what I'm saying on the margins. It's all about who he was as his former self, not, you know, compared to Damian Lillard. He's still a better player than Damian Lillard. I think everybody knows that after the last four, four to five games. Point being, I think a lot of the stuff you're saying is correct. He definitely manages a game better now, um, and that is reason to be optimistic. But he also can't lose the recklessness that he once played with. It's a very, very fine line to walk between saying, hey, I'm going to take, I'm going to constantly hunt for shots, and you know what? There's times where i got to manage the game a little bit better. And I think he absolutely has improved at that, and I think we've seen it the last four to five games. Now, what does it look like against the Clippers and Lakers? Another big test. And no, I'm not saying his legacy is on the line. That's not what I'm saying at all. I want to see how it looks this year against some of the best defenses in the league. And what that will tell me is, is this team actually ready to be a Western Conference playoff semi-contender where they can have a puncher's chance against anybody, but they're not favored against the best teams in the league? That's what this next week and a half will tell me of games. These next seven games, that's what I'm looking for. How good is this team against some of the better teams in the league? Because to start the year, they looked like an absolute train wreck. Hmm. That's an interesting point you brought up about uh, his recklessness. I haven't really thought about that because he, yep. he he doesn't like sometimes him being a little too tempered could be a bad thing. Is what you're saying? Sure. Yep. Um, what, one last thing I want to touch on with Steph before we uh, that you just reminded me of before we move on uh, to the net. So like uh, w- this became a big thing when Ben uh, Ben Dietrich or Detrick or however you pronounce his last name was tweeting about Steph the other day, and he said a bunch of stuff that I didn't agree with, but I did think he brought up one thing that I thought that I think is interesting, and I wish people were a little bit more open minded on because uh, 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 like the a great example would be like like Michael Vick. You know, Michael Vick was was a market inefficiency in the sense that yeah. teams had no idea how to deal with a mobile quarterback like him. He was he would never be as effective right now because teams are so much more set up. They've they've downsized their linebackers. They've they've built defensive schemes where you know a linebacker is completely keyed in on the quarterback the entire time. And uh, they 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 found ways. They grew into a, a league that had learned how to better deal with someone like Mike Vick. And that doesn't mean that Mike Vick is a lesser quarterback. And to me, it's a compliment to Mike. It's a, it's a sign that he was ahead of his time and, and in many ways a genius. And I feel the same way about Steph. Like, I think it's okay to admit that the way that teams guard Steph now is different than the way teams guarded Steph in 2015 and 2016. And the fact that they had no idea how to guard him helped him win basketball games. It's a fact. You can't like there's no point in lying about it. In 2016, he was crossing half court against the Oklahoma City Thunder on a clutch possession with the game on the line, unguarded and stepping into a 30 foot three. Now they're literally like last night, Sacramento was trapping him in the back court. Okay, teams are guarding Steph different now than they used to. And many other guards have copied him. Now, Dame and and Trey Young are taking a lot of long threes off the dribble over over ball screens. That's something that you never used to see in the league, except for when Steph did it. And now other guards around the league are doing it. And as a result, defenses have adapted and learned how to better guard them. That doesn't mean that Steph is a lesser player. 
It just means that he took advantage of a little bit of a market inefficiency there during that time period. And that's what allowed a 6'3 guard who does not defend at the same level as, as the super elite wings in the league to be maybe the best player in the league. I don't think he was. I think he was the second best player. But to be in that conversation, he, he was a genius who was ahead of his time who found a hole in the NBA and exploited it to literally win a championship and then to win two more with Kevin Durant. It is a compliment to him. But I also think that like Steph fans and warrior fans are a little bit unrealistic about the realities of this Steph experience, which has been that he's guarded differently now than he used to be. And I think that that's okay to admit. And I don't think that that's an insult to Steph. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not an insult. I, I think that the pushback that I have with stuff like that is like, oh, he didn't revolutionize the game at all. It's like, no, he absolutely did because whether three-pointer, the three-point rate was already going up in the league before Steph really became Steph, you know, 2013, 2014. Teams were starting to take more threes. But it was accelerated because of Steph. Revolutions are never one thing, right? It's a multitude of factors. So does the revolution still happen where teams are eventually taking, you know, 40, 50 threes a game? Yeah, probably. But does it happen within a three-year period where the Warriors are shooting 30 threes a game and they're the number one in attempts, and then they're still shooting 30 threes a game three years later and they're like 12th in attempts? No, <laughs> probably not. He accelerated everything. He made it happen a lot quicker than it was going to because what him and Clay obviously proved is that you can be a jump-shooting team and win a title. Now, I still think some of that stuff is misguided because good luck getting two of the five best shooters of all time. Right. And, and so but our friend Bobby on Twitter always says this, the 2015 Warriors taught us the wrong lesson. Jacking up a bunch of threes isn't necessarily the way to go. You do have to shoot threes at volume now because it's simple math. You have to shoot enough of them to be competitive. But at the same time, I don't think it's necessarily the way to go. Like I said, my pushback to Ben would be if you're going to sit here and say that Steph Curry didn't revolutionize basketball, it's not just the three pointers. It's like you're talking about with Michael Vick. Now teams have linebackers who are speedy and can chase down speedy quarterbacks. Teams have gone to more switch oriented schemes because, and guys who are switchable because that's an easy way to stamp out threes. You're not, you, you can just show high on pick and rolls. You can switch curls. You can switch flares because we don't want this, our opponent to get open threes. So, I'm, I'm fine with saying Steph has guarded different. He absolutely is. Teams have changed the way they've guarded him, and it's made his life harder, right? That's what you're supposed to do with the best players in the league. But mm. to sit here and act like the guy didn't revolutionize the game of basketball, I think it's a load of crap, honestly. Well, that's that's the thing that I think that's where Dietrich crossed the line, if I remember correctly, is I think he said that Allen Iverson had revolutionized the game more than yeah. Steph did or something yeah. like that. I remember I mean, being if like, we're, if we're talking like cultural, <laughs> if we're talking cultural impact, sure, I'll hear that argument. Yeah, it's but a different talking, conversation. Yeah, but if we're talking on court, it's not even close. It, it's yeah. Steph Curry, Steph Curry literally shaped the way that uh, um, that all of these guards play basketball now. A like, literal generation of guards. Yeah, like Bra- guys like Bradley Beal and Kemba Walker and Dame. Lillard used to never take threes out of pick and roll like a, a, against drop coverage. They would attack yeah. in and take mid-range shots. They would like the, the, there, there's an entire element to the way that guards develop their skills now that is 100% based on what Steph Curry did. The idea that, that that didn't revolutionize the game is insanity to me. And I think, but I, again, like that's the thing. Like I, you know, Steph's going to go down at the end of the day as a top 10 player all time, in my opinion. I think he's going to, unless yeah. he suffers a catastrophic injury right now, in which case he's still 12th at the lowest. Three but to four he, more years of, of like statistical production. Yeah, he'll be there. Exactly. And so you, he's going to be up there and he's going to be the only short guy up there, literally. So that yeah. that requires to me 
some crazy circumstances. And the crazy circumstance here is that he had to use his brain because he didn't have the physical, uh, you know, uh, the physical part of it. And in his, his, he, he saw a hole in the game. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, no one guards anybody out here. <laughs> you know? so, like, like if you watch the 2013 playoffs, you could see it coming. He, yeah. he, that's how he, he kind of started to do it. It was like, okay, David Lee's out. I'm going to shoot eight or nine threes a game, and six of them are going to be off the dribble. The Spurs, one of the greatest defensive teams of all time from you know the year 2000 through 2016, had no idea what to do with him. The, mm-hmm. the, their response was, okay, we're just going to run him off a bunch of screens. We're going to bang him up, and, and that's part of the reason why he had to get stronger. But he absolutely torched them in game one of that series, and they came within a possession of winning the NBA Finals that year. You know, He dropped 44 and 11 on one of the best defensive teams of all time, maybe. And it's because he, he found a market inefficiency. Yeah, it, literally coaches teach you growing up as you're playing basketball, like before Steph, what they would teach you, like it used to be part of like a, a, a drill that you would do where if it was a live dribble, you'd give space. And if it was a, and if it was uh, if it was a catch and shoot, you'd start in the shooting pocket, like like mm-hmm. on the catch, you'd be right up in his business. As soon as he b- began any sort of dribble, uh, dribbling, you'd immediately give space and you put yeah. a hand out like like you can't guard people like that anymore because guys will just shoot over the top of you like the game has literally changed as a result of him. And I think it's it's foolish to to gloss over that Uh, but you did bring up something interesting that i think is a perfect segue into the nets so um the brooklyn nets right now are 10th in offense 14th in defense 8th in net rating um they're coming off of a couple of bad losses uh there's there's this thing going on with katie and covid that we're not going to talk about but he's going to be out for a little while but he should be back Uh, yeah he'll be he'll be back eventually um uh, they just had this game where KD and uh, and Kyrie both missed a crunch time jump shot, which we're going to get to in a second. But the big thing that I want to point to is is like what you were talking about from Bobby, the the comment that the 2015 Warriors taught us the wrong lesson. Because again, it's it's important to understand that you know the 2015 Warriors were not a finesse team. They had they were the best defensive team in the league. Yeah, high, exactly. high defensive rating, the best defensive team in the league. And they had big physical uh, uh, defensive players like Draymond Green was a was a physical player, and Andre Guadala was a very physical player. Clay Thompson was an extremely gifted perimeter defender who was physical in the way that he used his body to bump people off of their driving lines and force them to shoot over the top. Like literally, that Andrew was a Bogut, physical team. Andrew Bogut, incredible physical, incredibly physical rim protector. Mm-hmm. Even off the bench, Harrison Barnes played. The reason, part of the reason why the death lineup initially works is because Harrison Barnes could guard four men. He guarded yeah. Pac Randolph for a lot of that Memphis series and did just fine against him. They were a super, super physical, hard-nosed, tough team. Mm-hmm. And this is something we talked about before the season in our preview about, about the Brooklyn in the sense that we thought that they were missing a lot of those dirty work type of guys. And this is and, and I think like ironically, this crunch time situation with uh Kyrie and Katie is such a great uh a microcosm of everything that I've been preaching for years, which is that basketball is about so much more than just elite isolation creation. That doesn't mean that it's not a very valuable skill. It's right up there with all of, uh, with the, 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 the skills that I always preach about, you know, defensive versatility and, and uh, elite offensive creation for your teammates and things along those lines. But it's funny because, you know, everyone will boil it down to, oh, the Brooklyn Nets lost that game because Kyrie and KD missed open jump shots that they were able to create off the dribble. And I, I completely disagree. You know, if you actually pull up, you know, clutch numbers, for superstar players in NBA history, they all shoot low percentages in Fair crunch time. Kobe's Games? like 25%. LeBron's like high 30. None of, none of them are good. None of them are good. They're, they're no always good. tough shots. 
they're, they're always tough, tough shots. Yep. And so that's why it's important to understand like these basketball games are won in crunch time through like, like good old fashioned rock fight basketball. That's literally how they're won. And if you allow yourself to get bullied physically on the other end of the floor, you're not going to be able to get KD enough looks for him to win on the other end. You've got to be able to do all of those things. And that's what I loved about that Lakers team last year was like, it was, it, they, they, they were able to thrive in that environment when the games really got into that, uh, uh, into that like absolute, you know, shit show of a rock fight type. There's of thing. a reason they were like 56 and 0 or whatever when leading going into the fourth quarter. Exactly. One game all year when they were leading going into the fourth quarter is because they were in an absolutely elite defensive team. Exactly. And so what, what we're seeing with Brooklyn that I think is interesting is, you know, uh, uh, their offense is going to be fine. I have absolutely no doubt about that. The only thing that would concern me about them on the offensive end of the floor is they are a little bit reliant on jump shot making. And it's, it's something, uh, uh, you know, the Warriors were reliant on jump shot making in a lot of ways, but they were so good defensively that it was, it wasn't a problem. And my, and that's my thing is you need your defense to carry you during stretches when you're not making shots. And what's, whereas, you know, that's what makes the, the Lakers so scary is that they rely on a brand of offense that also involves some shot making, but they're going to get a great deal of shots right at the rim because of LeBron's physical ability to just bully people under the basket. And Anthony Davis, who against like look against the Miami, the Miami Heat double teamed him out of the post and he was unable to to post up, but he was so good at like just bullying people on the offensive glass and just getting tippins and all this other stuff. Like they, they, they were able to generate this easy stuff that Brooklyn Nets team, every basket they get is going to be hard, especially when they get into the half court of the court of these playoff series. That doesn't mean they can't win. I still think they have a really good chance to come out of the East, but that, that those are the kinds of flaws that you and I pointed to before the season. They don't defend well enough to carry them during stretches when they're not making jump shots. And they're really bad at generating easy shots. They're really good at making difficult shots, but they're really bad at generating easy shots. So they have a tendency to be able to go cold. And the reality is, is like, like those two shots that Kyrie and Katie took at the end of that game. Those are what we would consider high percentage shots for jump shots, but they aren't high percentage shots when you factor in historically how difficult it is in a really like slow down, bog down, crunch time game to make a pull up jump shot. Like all stars in NBA history have shot low percentages there because your legs are tired and you've got to use a lot of energy to get that separation. And it's just it's just difficult to win games that way. It, it'll win you some, win you some games, but it, that there's a reason why the, the Nets have fallen off and have dipped below 500, and it's because they're relying too much on difficult shot making and not the bona fide proven ways to win games involving defense and, and being physical and generating easy shots. So I think everything you pointed to there is correct. And, and how I'll add onto it is we don't spend enough time. I think when discussing the NBA talking about the relation between offensive and defensive rating, one of the reasons the Warriors were so good kind of, as you pointed to is they had this elite defense and not only was it elite, it created turnovers and easy looks for a team that sometimes struggled to get easy looks. They were a team that relied on jump shooting, and they were a team that sometimes in the half court struggled to get easy looks because their primary creator is a 6'3 guard, right? So they're not creating a ton of rim attempts like a team like with LeBron and Anthony Davis is. You said Brooklyn was 7th in offensive rating, I believe, 7th or 8th? They're 10th right now. They're 10th in, in offensive rating. And to me, that is directly related to them being 14th in defensive rating. You know why? Because they're taking the ball out of the net a lot. 
Yep. The easiest way to get good looks is to either create a turnover or get the ball off a miss and run and create either wide open threes, wide open jump shots, or get to the rim in transition. They're not able to do that right now because they can't get enough stops. So one quick one quick note on on Brooklyn yeah. too that I think you can piggyback on too is yep. they uh, uh, and actually uh, Bobby Marks pointed this out on the Windhorse uh, Windhorse podcast the other day and, I, and then I started digging uh, to look at it they they played a really bad Golden State Warriors team on opening night that couldn't score because they did, hadn't figured out their offense yet yep. and they played a Boston Celtics team that had lost their point guard and and their and their best perimeter playmaker in Gordon Hayward. And literally we're relying on two really young wings who are scoring players and not creation players. And their offense was really in shambles at that point in the season. And it, and it bolstered their defensive rating. And I tweeted yesterday in their last five games, they were 29th in defense in the league. The only team that was worse was Minnesota. So like they're, they're, they're not just bad. I know the, that 14th is a little bit misleading in the sense that they have really, really let go of the rope on that end of the floor as of late. And uh, if it's happened this early in the season, that yep. is a bad, bad, bad sign. If they're already twenty, if you know you said last five games are 29th in defensive rating. Yeah, I'll find my tweet to make sure, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was. That, I mean, so yeah, I, I mean that that adds on to the point. That's why they've dropped a tenth in offensive rating because they are taking the ball out of the net so much. I don't care how talented you talented you are offensively, if you are always taking the ball out of the rim, you're gonna struggle to score, especially if you're relying on jump shots. Because those are just, it's just, they're just tougher shots than getting to the rim. You know, the, the formula for winning is still getting as many rim attempts as possible. You know, it, the, the reason for spacing out to the three point line and shooting more threes is to get more rim attempts. That's the mm. entire point. It's to give your superstar players more space to create more rim attempts, right? That, looking at the Warriors model and saying, this is the way to do it, shoot a bunch of threes, like I pointed out earlier, I don't think it's necessarily the way to go. Now, mm. To, to not go that route, you do have to get lucky and get LeBron James and Anthony Davis on the same team, and that's a way you can get a ton of rim attempts. But it, that is still the best formula, formula for winning a championship, playing high-level defensive basketball, top five, top ten level, and then getting as many possible attempts at, at the rim as possible. Hmm. So if this Brooklyn team is going to be that bad defensively, there is no way they're winning the Eastern Conference because they'll be taking the ball out of the net too much. It doesn't matter uh, – I know there probably are some concerns with Philadelphia against some of the better teams in the league scoring consistently in the half court. But if Brooklyn is that bad defensively, they're going to be able to score enough. And then they're a really good defensive team. Yeah. Really, a really good defensive team. That's part of the reason why I picked them to win the East because I thought Brooklyn was going to be too deficient defensively to win a series. And I thought the Bucs would be too deficient offensively to win a series against Philly. Uh, it's more of a matchup thing more so than anything else. So yeah, if Brooklyn's going to be that terrible, they have, Literally no chance of winning the Eastern Conference if they're going to be one of the worst defensive teams in the league. Now, what we could point to is um, I think the twenty the 2018 Cavs were um, 20. You could probably you probably 21st, first. I think. But they, yeah. again, they weren't they weren't dealing with teams like Philly and Milwaukee out east. They just exactly they, they were playing Victor Oladipo and rookie Jason Tatum and and the Raptors right before they blew it up with the Rosen. Like teams that were really t- kind of either really young or towards the end of the rope in terms of where they were at in their trajectory. So um, that I was not optimistic on Brooklyn coming into the season. I think you, people could probably guess that from me picking Philly to win the East. I am less optimistic now, um, especially if KD is going to go down for a week. Maybe it's even more than a week um, with pro- COVID protocol stuff. What are they going to be when he comes back? Four and eight, four and nine. Mm-hmm. So now they're already trying to dig out of a hole. They'll be on the road for a playoff series. Maybe fans will be back by that time. Who knows? So if they've got to go on the road to Philly and Philly gets to have 25, 50% capacity, that's going to be a crazy Philly crowd, even with that few people. Mm -hmm. Um, Point being, 
Brooklyn to me is in a much worse spot than I expected early in the season. I thought they'd at least play with effort early on, but it doesn't even seem like they're doing that. Well, they're the, the Kyrie and, and, and KD are both, you know, a little bit, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're just flaky in terms of their like personalities and the way they can kind of ebb in and out focus wise during the season. And this, this is the last thing I want to touch on with Brooklyn before we move on, you know, and we talked a little bit about this before the season, but I, I, I think it's, I think it's so ridiculous to me that, you know, for instance, with Steph, you know, we look at Steph and we talk about where he's, he ranks with the other players in the league. And we talk about how his, you know, on-ball creation and his off-ball creation, his own personal scoring, what he does for his teammates and how that adds value, you know, uh, uh, what, how that impacts winning. And then we also talk about how, like, you know, he doesn't, you know, give away points on the defensive end. He's not an elite defensive player, but he's not, he's kind of like a middle of the pack, hold his own type of guy. And he's been really good this year so far. He's been really good. Best I've seen him since 2017, probably. But what really, what really bothers me and, and it's, and it's, it's doesn't, it doesn't take away from, you know, how fun it is to watch KD or the fact that, you know, I'm really happy that he's coming back from his injury and he looks healthy. He had a dunk early against, against the, I think it was against the Pistons. That was just ridiculous mm-hmm. uh, where, he did, where he did a double crossover and then took off of his right leg and just threw it down with two hands. Like the, uh, he looks great. I'm super happy for him. I'm rooting for him. Here's the thing. If you want to be considered on LeBron James's level, or on Kawhi Leonard's level, or better than those guys, why in the world are we letting him off the hook in what we expect from him on the defensive end of the floor? And it, and it really, really bothers me that, that, that no one ever brings this up. He, he somehow, somewhere along the line, gained this reputation as someone who was a good defensive player, and no one ever watches him anymore or pays any close attention. You and I talked before the season that the only way this team would be an elite defensive team was if Katie cared enough to make that one of his goals. And because we talked about how he has Anthony Davis's defensive gifts, he's equally mobile, if not more, he's got the same height and length. He's got, he's not quite as, as strong, but he's got, he's got the ability to be that type of impact defensive player. He just literally doesn't care. And, and I don't, that does, that's not a problem necessarily. And you could still win with him. As we know, we've seen him do it. But to me, it's worth bringing up that as one of the most physically gifted players in the league, at a position where every single one of his peers, including Paul George and Kawhi Leonard and Giannis Antetokounmpo and LeBron, who's faded in and out at times, but for the most part of his career has been one of the best defensive players in the league. KD just doesn't care enough to even devote the time and focus it requires to build that you know, to build that identity on this team, which could literally be the difference between him winning and losing this year, is whether or not he can be a facsimile of Anthony Davis, or if he continues to be the turnstile that he can be at times. That's going to be the difference between them winning and losing. And I think it's. I'm not saying it, 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 it like I, this is not slander because he's been like this his whole career. I just think it's worth pointing out that when you're comparing him to his peers, he's got all the athletic gifts in the world and has gotten almost, he's got not almost nothing, but he's, he's an average to slightly above average defensive player when he should be a first team all defense guy. And, and, and I think that's worth pointing out. You know, what's funny about it too. Um, a lot of those LeBron years where he was bad and he shouldn't get an excuse for those was because he was carrying such a heavy offensive load. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need to do that this year. Mm-hmm. He has one of the better on ball creators in the league with Kyrie next to him. And they also have Karis LeVert, who has been up and down this year, but he's a guy who can create on the ball. The Spencer Dinwiddie injury does hurt. 
but they have enough offensive talent on that roster to where he can maybe take five to 10% of his energy and focus it on defense and say, you know what? Every night or 90% of the time, I'm shutting off the rim tonight and teams aren't scoring just like Anthony Davis does. And AD hasn't looked that great early in the year just because short offseason, whatever. But we know when it, when it comes to nut crunching time, AD is going to shut off the rim every single time and teams aren't going to score. Durant mm-hmm. has that ability. He truly does. Saw he him literally do has that ability. We saw him do it in Golden State. We mm-hmm. saw him do it in the 2016 Western Conference Finals. It threw the whole series out of whack. Mm-hmm. Draymond Green didn't know what to do. Draymond Green looked absolutely lost after having the best season of his career because KD was everywhere and his arms were everywhere and Draymond could barely make passes at some point of the series. It, it befuddles me that he's just not willing to do this because like you're saying, it is the difference between them like losing in the second round and maybe winning a title. Like that, that's how big of a swing skill his defense is this year. Ask, and, ask LeBron the years that he didn't defend, he lost. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Exactly. And suddenly in 2020, he engaged himself on the defensive end. I, th- I thought he should have been second team all defense. So he, he ended up not getting it, but he was pretty unanimous, unanimously re- referred to as one of the better defensive players in he the league. Really and, really and literally they won again. And yeah. it, it's just, it's, it, there will be a time. And, you know, like, it's just, it's one of those things where in a margin, in a year like this too, where the title is there for the taking. You know, yeah. this Laker team is the best team in the league, I think, but they are not unbeatable. And, and it's there for the taking, and, and, and you have a roster. I, I've been pleasantly surprised with, with, uh, uh, with a lot from this Brooklyn team. You have what it takes to win. They just need you to do what the other guys at the top of the league do which is maximize their defensive talent. Steph isn't the same defensive player as those other guys, but he damn sure is getting every single drop of defensive potential out of his body. And so is Anthony Davis. And so is, uh, uh, you know, Giannis Antetokounmpo. And, and so is Kawhi Leonard. And so is LeBron. And you, and you are leaving something on the table, leaving a lot on the table there. And it could be the difference between winning and losing. And I think that's worth, all I'm saying is it's worth pointing out when you're telling me about who the best players in the league are. And it's the reason why I didn't have him as high as other people did coming into the season. You know, it's just, it's just I, think it's, I think it's part of winning basketball games, which if that's not the ultimate goal, then what are we even talking about here? Defense is such a top-down thing, man. If your best players do it and commit to it, everybody else will. They have to. They have no choice. Mm-hmm. They have absolutely zero choice. Because if you can point to the best guy and say, hey, he's, he's kicking ass every night on the defensive end, what, what is Joe Harris going to say to that? What is Karis LeVert going to say to that? What is DeAndre Jordan going to say to that? Because he's an absolute statue at this point. The fact that he's playing more than Jared Allen, that, that kind of personifies all their issues as a whole. The fact that he's getting more minutes than Jared Allen just because I guess he's friends with KD. Mm-hmm. And point being, uh, their whole season is basically in Durant's hands. If he decides to commit to that end, everybody else will. And if he doesn't, then they're going to lose in the second round. And that's I think that's basically what I said before the season. So mm-hmm. but we'll see what happens, but I am... I'm out for the time being. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, and, and it won't be we won't we won't be able to get anything new from them for four games anyway with yeah, the KD. I know. I know. Um, okay, so with the Lakers, second in offense, fifth in defense, second in net rating. Um, big thing standing out to me is that LeBron and AD are basically barely trying. They're both underneath 24 points per game. They're both playing pretty low minutes compared to what they had been playing. The team has had uh, uh, multiple games and quarters and halves this season where they basically coasted and then just tried to grab the game at the end and win. Um, they're a half game out of first place in the league in terms of uh, the standings. Tell me why I shouldn't be more confident than ever that this team is going to win the title. 
Um, injuries to LeBron or Anthony Davis, but he <laughs> got there a short off season. I mean, I, I don't really have any good answers. Uh, like I said, I think on our previous, when we did kind of our season Western conference season preview, the reason for the Schroeder and Trez signings, in my opinion, they were regular season sign- signings. And I think Schroeder will help in the playoffs. He's looked really good this year. He's defending really well. He's defending really well. And that's going to be a key for him to stay on the floor, especially when, uh, you know, Crusoe feels a little bit better um, and, and he's back in the rotation. But those guys are going to help them float, uh, you know, float wins on the, on the nights where LeBron and AD just don't have it because they're coming off a season where they did do everything for that, that 2020 Lakers team. They, had, they both had a huge load to carry on both ends every single night. Um, and they did it for, you know, 60-plus games, and they went to the bubble, and they did it for two and a half months. And then they got 70 days of an offseason, shortest offseason in NBA history, basically. So – if you're a Lakers fan, you have lots of reasons to be optimistic right now. This team is deep. They're good. They can defend. They're they're everything you want in a title contender. And they still have, you know, whatever you think of LeBron, whatever you think of AD, probably two of the five or six best players in the world at the absolute worst. And more so than anything, that's a formula for winning a title. If you have two of the six best players in the world, you're probably at least going to be in the conversation, if not right at the top. And they, and they have the supporting play, players to do it. Um, I know I saw some weird stuff with Wes, Wes Matthews net rating and him being actually their worst net rating guy through six or seven games, which was confusing to me, but I've actually really liked the way he's looked for them so far. Uh, like I said, Schroeder's look good. Trez is Trez. I, I don't think, I think he's he not going to play crunch time. He's, he can't defend. I'm, I, we okay. knew that coming into the season, but it's exactly. been pretty it, it, it's, it was very evident because I, I watched that Clippers team a lot. He was one of the reasons that I didn't think they had a chance to win a t- the title last year. He was playing too many minutes. Him and, they were relying on 30 minute, minutes from him and Lou Williams. You're not winning a title like that ever. I'm sorry. But he's a good guy to get 12 and 6 off the bench in the regular season or even in the playoffs and only play in, you know, small sports in the first and second quarters and then the third and fourth quarters. He's never playing closing minutes. Um, they're a really good team. Uh, I, I mean, I really don't have much else to add. They, they look just as good as last, last year, if not better. The only thing I worry about is they are, with the loss of Dwight and JaVale compared to Gasol, they are a little bit less athletic on the front line. If they do come across a team that can exploit that, it will put a lot on AD. But I think we've seen that he's more than willing to play the five when it actually gets down to, you know, second, third round of the playoffs, and they need him to play 20, 30 minutes a night there. So that would be my only concern at this point. But besides that, they, they look – they're coasting to wins, like absolutely coasting. They're barely even trying most nights, and then they're turning it on for six or seven minutes, and they're winning the game. So. They, they very clearly have another level they can get to, yeah. uh, if not a couple of levels. Um, the biggest thing that I think, if I was a fan of one of the other 29 teams, the biggest thing that would concern me is that they look a lot like – uh, last year's Milwaukee team without the same fatal flaws. For instance, last year's Milwaukee team that everybody, we always talked about this going into the, uh, the MVP debate, but the, the, with Giannis on the floor, they were murdering teams. And then with Giannis off the floor, they were still outscoring teams by like, you know, I think it was five or six points per possession. They're, the, they're outscoring teams by what, four points per possession with LeBron off the floor right now? Yeah, like literally, they they are they are destroying teams with LeBron on the floor right now, and when LeBron is off the floor, they're still outscoring teams by just under five points per one hundred possessions. So it's it's shaping up now. Again, this is really early. That a lot of those numbers are likely to to calm down a little bit, but here in the early going, they are absolutely 
dominating basketball teams without having to really put their foot on the gas. That last game against Memphis, now Memphis was without John Morant, so it's a pretty yeah. bad team. And Jaron so, Jackson. Yeah, it's a yeah. Bad, bad team. Lebr- LeBron literally was BSing for three quarters and then came in the fourth quarter and was like, we'll try, we'll win, and we'll get out of here. And they ended up winning by double digits and, and helped all their advanced metrics. Like, it's the craziest thing. I, they, they just... And, and and this is where the Trez and the Montrez Harrell or the Montrez Harrell and, and Dennis Schroeder and Wesley Matthews types of signings really help. And we talked about this before the season, but the new bodies in that locker room have allowed the Lakers to to lose some of the lethargy. And so LeBron and AD can kind of BS their way through games, but the other guys on the roster aren't. And it's allowing them to get to the end of the game when they can really dial it up and and put these teams away. I I. I am of the opinion that the gap has grown because I don't like what I've seen from Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh, the Clippers actually look pretty good, uh, but it's hard to say because they had that one Dallas game. Yeah, they have it, well, and they but they also got destroyed by the Jazz with Kawhi. Yeah. So they're, they they have a couple of really bad losses. But um, with the Clippers, I just have the same problems with them that I've always had. Um, uh, let's move on to Philly. So Philly, fourteenth in offense, but number one in defense. Uh, third in net rating. They're first, number one in defense by a wide margin. They're the only team in the league under 100 points per possession. Yeah. And I think number, yeah, and number two is like one at, up over 102 points per possession. Um, uh, Seth Curry's having a career uh, best year. Tobias Harris has been absolutely killing it lately. Uh, ben Simmons has been playing really well. He's only made one three to this point in the season, but he looks pretty good. And Joel Embiid is looking like an MVP candidate. So yeah. uh, you were high on this team coming into the season. Um, is there anything from them that you've seen that would change your mind or make you get reckless in making any prediction or anything along those lines? No, I mean, I, I still think they they have, I think, a ways to improve offensively. Like you said, 14th in offensive rating, but I think some of that was early on that they had some bad games, and we'll see if that's common for them or they have these games where they really struggle or kind of more of an outlier early in the season. They're getting used to some things. I've noticed that they are adding some wrinkles offensively, some good stuff to get Simmons downhill, uh, a bunch of stuff to get Curry shots. Like you said, he's shooting – I mean, he's he's shooting like 50, 50, 100 right now, I think, from the field. So that's obviously not going to last. But he's one of the better shooters in the league. Um, and there's a reason I really love that pairing of him and Simmons because, I mean, it has like some like – poor man Steph Draymond vibes right like the skill sets are somewhat similar Seth obviously isn't Steph and Simmons obviously isn't Draymond but the skill sets are similar right so they can do some of the things that those two can do together a lot of dribble handoff stuff Seth isn't a bad passer he can create a little bit out of you know pick and roll THO situations uh, get Simmons downhill get him into situations where he's playing four on three like you said Embiid has looked amazing Um, he's looked like maybe the best defender in the NBA he could easily win the defensive player of the year this year Mm -hmm. Uh, the key for them is just going to be, okay, can we get our offense to top 10 level and do we trust Embiid enough late in games to actually win playoff series, right? That, that's what it's really going to come down to. Can Joel Embiid be good enough late in the game against Kevin Durant, um, against Kyrie Irving, against Giannis to actually win win the game? Because they're going to be there defensively. I think they're going to be able to get enough stops. They have the correct, They have so much defensive versatility on that roster. They can really, I think they can basically guard any type of su- superstar, just looking at it um, kind of from a broad spectrum. They can throw, South Curry isn't a bad defender. He's pretty solid. He's really handsy on ball. He's more physical than you'd expect. You can throw him on um, a Kyrie type. Matisse Thibault is obviously a really good guy to throw on any type of guard or wing. Uh, Tobias Harris, Ben Simmons, really big bodies on the wing that can defend. Embiid's one of the best rim protectors in the league. They're like I said, I, I thought before the year getting a fresh voice in that locker room with Doc Rivers was really going to help them. And then they get, did get some new guys, too, so it didn't feel so stagnant. They brought in Curry. They brought in Green. They got rid of Al Horford. 
um, yeah, I really like this team. My opinion on them has not changed at all. I still think they're probably going to win the East. Um, and, you know, to piggyback on the Lakers stuff, I still think the Lakers would be favored in that series, and I think they should be. Um, but I'm, I'm really optimistic about this Philly team. It's just going to be, can they figure out how to get, manufacture a few more easy buckets in the half court? Because uh, the defense is going to be ridiculously elite all year. And that stuff about the half court 100% comes down to Embiid. Um uh, one quick note on the Lakers. His passing has been better this year, by the way. He he is actually looking for cutters again. He's looking for shooters, which he wasn't doing as much in years past. I think because he was maybe frustrated with the way with the roster and the coaching and a bunch of things. So, but he he's he seems to have a renewed energy, and I think that was a lot of the reason for getting rid of Bet Brown and bringing in Doc Rivers. Well, yeah, and I mean Daryl Morey managed to completely fix this roster in one offseason just by making basic basketball decisions that were related. Get some shooting to- around Joel, Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. What a novel concept, huh? <laughs> but I, I do think this is one of the biggest reasons why I was pro the the uh, the Marcus All signing is you know Dwight Howard was a good option to throw at Jokic and a good option to throw at a guy like Embiid. But not a great option because he commits a lot of fouls, easily gets into foul trouble, can get kind of riled up and very easily can mentally check out of a game. Marcus All to me, is such a huge addition for the Lakers as a spot guy to have for specific playoff matchups. If I'm because of the because, you know, Marcus All is a is a the, the game has kind of passed him by as a defensive center in the open court. But he is still probably the best post defender in the league. And he gives Embiid hell every time. He gives Embiid hell every single time, and he is built for a Jokic matchup as well. And so, from that standpoint, like I love having him on that Laker roster for those specific matchups. And because you know, when it comes to beating a team that is more talented, you usually need an ace in the hole, a matchup that you just can't deal with. For instance, the Clippers and the Nuggets last year. The Nuggets did not have the top to bottom talent that the Clippers did. But they didn't have anybody that could guard Jokic, and it completely threw off the tenor of the series, and it made it so that you know the uh, uh, the Clippers found themselves into late game scenarios, and then a couple things didn't go their way, and then they lost. And so having that kind of matchup could have been a problem for a lot of teams in the league, and having someone like Marcus on the roster is huge. But I, I again, like the this this would be my question for Philly, and it's something that I think will be interesting to watch as the season progresses. If you think Embiid is that guy. And you think that this is the season that when he gets toe-to-toe, eye-to-eye with the best players in the league in late-round playoff series, that he's going to be able to come out on top, then I think you keep the status quo and you ride this out. You build on your number one defense in the league. And the goal is just to keep the game close so you can ride Embiid late. Uh, if you don't think Embiid can do that, then I think you got to go after Harden. And, I've, and, I, and I, t- I tweeted this last night. I'm, I, I told you before the season that I thought they needed to go after Harden. And I'm worried that they're playing too well now that that is off the, off the table. They're gonna I'm, hoping that, I'm, I'm hoping that Daryl Morey, you know, has been around long enough to see that winning in those late round playoff series is all about your alpha dog and what he can do against the other alpha dogs in the league. He, he literally has been assassinated by Steph Curry before he knows what it, it, he knows what it takes. And so from that standpoint, you know, if I, if they, if they come into a rough patch or if they lose to a couple of really good teams, like if they drop a game in Milwaukee or they drop a game against uh, one of the big Western conference teams, or they lose a game in Boston, 
because suddenly when Boston and, 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 and Toronto and, and, you know, Milwaukee get into a, a switching scheme in the half court that leaves, you know, uh, Embiid on an island and all of a sudden he can't handle double teams and Ben Simmons is back to being a, a guy in the dunker spot. If that kind of thing happens. I, ho- I hope they're smart enough to audible and realize that they've got an option on the table that makes them unbeatable. And if a lot of people are like, oh, you have to ditch Thibel or you got, you know, Ben Simmons could be the defense player of the year. Why would you do that? It's like, it's like you, if you can build a team around James Harden, Seth Curry, Tobias Harris, and Joel Embiid, you do that a million times out of a million because that's the best top four in the league, probably. You know, I mean, Embiid's looking like a, the sixth or seventh best player in the league, and Harden's right there. I think he's around seventh or eighth. Do you think he's eleventh? But the point is, is like that. That's a lineup there. That, it, that other teams in the league will not be able to match up with. And, it, and, it, and it's something, it's an opportunity that's right there for the taking. And I feel like they're playing so damn well that, that Daryl Morey is going to be tempted into not doing it. And Harden's going to end up going somewhere like Toronto where they're still not going to be good enough. And, and yeah. I don't know. I, that, that, that was just something that's been on my mind. Yeah, I, I don't, think about Morey is I don't think he ever takes any option really off the table, right? I, I mean, my guess would be he's waiting close to the deadline. He's waiting for more leverage. So they can give up less to get James Harden, mm-hmm. right? Because if they, I don't see how they get it done without Simmons. But if they somehow can, and now you have Harden, Simmons, and Embiid, you can be pretty special. I mean, that might be too many guys who need too many touches. That is an issue from time to time, where you got three guys who need the ball a lot. Um, you'd have to sell Simmons on really just being kind of an off-ball playmaker in a way, and and just being an absolute defensive menace. You basically have to sell him on being Draymond Green. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they can. Either way, if they can't get Harden, they're, they go from, in my opinion, the slight favorites in the East to being the prohibitive favorites in the East. If they can mm-hmm. somehow swing a Harden trade and keep Simmons or not keep Simmons, because Harden is that special off- or that is that special offensively. For all the crap that I give him, a lot of it is context-based and what he's done to that Rockets franchise in terms of just every 18 months they're turning over the roster because he's never happy. If you get him in a situation where you can, you have some leadership around him, you have some veterans, and you can kind of just tell him to do what he's really good at and not do much else, then, yeah, I think he's, like I've said, one of the most talented offensive players of all time. So if if it's on the table and they can get a better deal because they wait towards the trade deadline, then do it. You know? And Ben Simmons just missed a postseason with a knee injury, and he missed yeah. his rookie season with a foot injury. Like, he's not the he's same physical guy that uh, uh, that Harden is. Yep. Um, okay, so uh, just because we've been going for so long, let's go rapid fire through these. Yeah. Um, uh, what uh, what are your quick thoughts on Toronto? They're 28th in offense, 13th in defense, 21st in net rating. Siakam's been absolutely terrible. Again, 28th in offense is ridiculous for a yep. well-coached team like that. The only reason I wanted to talk about them is do they just punt? I mean, do they, do they decide this is the year that we move Lowry and and maybe move a couple guys and just kind of punt the year? Um, I know they just signed, re-signed Van Vliet. They gave Siakam a ton of money, so that doesn't really make sense to do in a lot of ways, but this draft is also – one of the most special drafts in, in the, in recent memory. I mean, I, I'm following it because the Warriors have the Wolves pick. Um, so they're going to get probably a pick in the four to 10 range. There's like five or six guys in this class who probably would have went number one in the last class. Mm-hmm. That, that's how good this draft class is. So if you're Toronto and you're Masai, who's not scared to, to take a risk and make a move, we know that for sure. Do you consider maybe moving Lowry and maybe moving even Siakam um, and kind of punting it and saying, let's, let's try to get a, a future superstar and start to rebuild a little bit here. Well, 
And the other thing there too is I, I think they're wired in a way kind of similar to the San Antonio Spurs, where I don't I don't think yeah, we're not is in their vocabulary. Yeah. But I do think that, you know, I don't think it's nearly as good of an opportunity for James Harden as Philly is, but they are an interesting opportunity because so theoretically you end up having to give up uh, Siakam and you have to give up um, oh God, what's his name? The guy towards ACL when he was a rookie. OG. OG and OB, yeah. So you have to give up OG and Siakam. It messes with your defense a little bit, but they still have a lot of athleticism on that team, a lot of of, of bigger wings. Theoretically, Lowry and, and, and Van Vliet are two really, really good shooters that uh, give James Harden space. You go all in on kind of a small ball team with a lot of athleticism um, and having uh, three guards that can create a lot on the perimeter. Uh, again, you have some matchup issues potentially when you get to the late round playoff series. I mean, Baines isn't a terrible option, but he's 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 someone you can throw. Um, uh, I, I do wonder if if that's the move there for them. Just understanding that they're not wired in a way that they would punt. You know, trading Kyle Lowry is effectively just selling. I, yeah. I like there's a lot trading Kyle Lowry makes a lot sense, a lot more sense for the other teams in the league than it does yeah. for the Raptors. Yeah. Um, meaning like, of course, like, yeah, of course, like he would make anybody better. Kyle Lowry is an absolute winner. If he's the thir- second or third best player on your team, like you're just, you're a lot better team. Uh, but again, wh- if I'm Toronto, if uh, the, what, what, like it, there's so much talent on the team too, you'd have to sell everything in order to tank. And I just yeah. don't, I don't think they're wired that way. And then the lottery is never a sure thing for getting a top five guy anyway, that, with the way that it shakes out. So I, they, to me, are a sleeper, uh, a hardened destination, or not even a sleeper, one of the top two or three uh, destinations. And yeah. then we also know, we, 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 we know uh, um, uh, from the Kawhi situation that that's something that they're willing to do. You know, yeah. Masai, Masai is, 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 is not scared to take a, a big risk. Um, Denver, 29th in defense, 4th in offense, 14th in net rating. Um, uh, we talked about before the season that giving up Torrey Craig – and uh, Jeremy, Grant. Um, Jeremy Grant could have been a problem for them in terms of their overall wing defense and the way that it might make them a less athletic team. And, and, and we talked about how Michael Porter Jr., while he's a great offensive player, was not the same defensive player in that role. And uh, early on, it looks like we hit that one out of the park. They're one of the best offensive teams in the league, and they're not winning games. Right. And that's basically why I wanted to talk about them. I think what we do a lot of the times is we don't realize how important point of attack defense is for raising a defensive floor. I think your health defenders, a Draymond Green, a you know Joel Embiid and Anthony Davis, they can raise your defensive ceiling a lot, and they obviously can raise the floor too, right? Because they're really special at stopping rim attacks. But if your if your guards and wings are constantly getting beat off the dribble, those type of guys can only do so much, right? You need those guys who can at least be passable to good on the ball, so your health defenders aren't constantly in rotation and constantly playing one or two steps behind. Mm-hmm. And so they're, I think their biggest issue is they really only have one one guy who's even average to above average as a point of attack defender. And that's Gary Harris. Mm. And he has not looked good this year either. He's had a lot of injuries at this point and he might never be the same guy. They gave him, you know, four years, 84 million, which looked like a great deal at the time. I thought that was a really good deal for Denver when he first signed it, but he's at hip injury. Yeah, Yeah, he was, he was shooting 40% from three. He was able to attack the rim. He looked like he was going to be one of the best young shooting guards in the league, but injuries, man, they, they ruined, they ruined tons of guys' careers. So who knows if he's ever going to be the same guy. It doesn't really look like it. And punting your other two best wing defenders, turns out that's not a good idea, especially when Torrey Craig, he didn't really even go for that much. Like I, it, A lot of their offseason moves made no sense to me. 
Um, I guess they wanted to see if Michael Porter Jr. was ready to be that guy, but pretty clearly he isn't. Um, maybe things change, but if Jokic has been amazing offensively, but if they can't get stops, none of that matters. They're two and four for a reason. Mm-hmm. They cannot get stops. Like I said, having point of attack defenders raises your defensive floor. That was the issue with the Warriors last year. Draymond Green was still Draymond Green defensively, but they were 27th in defensive rating because they didn't have anybody who could guard the ball. Mm-hmm. If you don't have guys who can guard the ball, you will not get stops, period, end of story. you got to have at least two or three of those guys. Denver has one at most right now. Well, you and I talked a lot about this as it pertains to Portland. Like, There's so much emphasis on this big switchy wing defender. And what, ironically, because of how talented the point guard position is in the league, the one of the most important parts of a defense is guard defense, and 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 it, you know it's funny because I uh, uh, it was it was one of the biggest you know refreshing things that I saw about the Lakers last year um, uh, was you know they, these were def- these were guys that were considered undersized you know below average defenders, but what they were good at was they were good at moving their feet against smaller guards, and so yeah, like Alex Caruso and Contavious Caldwell Pope couldn't guard Kawhi. But against all of these other teams in the league that were relying on your Jamal Murray, you know, Bradley Beal or Kemba Walker, any of these quick, you know, initiation guys up top, they were able to keep them in front and, and just do, do a, a better than usual job of making things difficult at the beginning of a possession for these guys. And, and you know, it, it's not exactly a big shock that that uh, Steph Curry was able to break things open against Dame and CJ because they're just not a really they're just not a really good point of attack defensive team in the backcourt. And they were like, Oh, we got Robert Covington. All of our defensive problems are solved. And it's like, well, um, unless you plan on having Robert Covington guard the other team's point guard, it's not really going to fix your problem. Every possession starts with a straight line drive. And yeah. And that's not his strength either. He's a really good help side defender. He's Mm -hmm. the type of guy that if you have good point of attack defenders, he can help raise your defensive ceiling because he's going to erase a lot of problems. Right. But if you don't have guys that can get a stop at all, then is it going to be blow by after blow by after blow by? And now he's always a step or two behind. And now we're either shooting layups, we're getting wide open threes. And yeah, it just point of attack defense, man. It's become underrated because there's all this focus on getting a Draymond Green, getting an Anthony Davis, getting this guy or that guy. First of all, good luck getting one of those guys. Second of all, if you do get him, you still got to be able to stop the ball. Nothing matters if you can't guard the ball. Exactly. Um, and the last thing I'll say about uh, Denver is that they're a team that I would project to eventually end up in the middle of the Western Conference playoff race, if not better, because they can score. And like I always say, it's a lot easier to take bad defensive players and get them to play some form of cohesive defensive basketball where they are rotating and being in the right spot at the right time. Um, and Mike Malone's a really, really good coach. Uh, I don't, they'll never be a top 10 defense with this personnel, but if they can get into that 15-14 range just by virtue of effort and focus, they will very easily be a, a four or five seed in the West just because of how good they are at scoring the ball. Yep. Um, last but not least, they're fourth in offense while being 29th in defense. That's insane. Yeah, it's insane. They're taking, they're taking the ball out of the net, and they're still one of the best offenses in the league. Exactly. Um, and and their offense makes sense, and they've got a lot of chemistry with the guys, and and, and maybe that's why they've kind of bowed out of this James Harden thing, is they're not worried about their offensive end of the ball. Yeah. Um, defense. Your uh, Atlanta. There are they are third in offense, 17th in defense, uh, sixth in net rate, rating. Uh, uh, Gallinari's been hurt for the most part. Uh, uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich has been really bad, like really yeah. bad, especially in the last couple of games. They started, uh, they started undefeated and then went into Brooklyn and lost a really crazy game yeah. where Kyrie made a bunch of clutch shots. Then they came back and beat the pants off of Brooklyn and looked really, really good. So they got off to this amazing start and then they lose to the Knicks and the Cavs. <laughs> so, so I don't, I don't really know what to make of them early in the two, in the Knicks and Cavs game. 
Uh, uh, Trey Young was really bad against the Cavs. He was okay against the Knicks. Bagdanovich was really, really bad. Like I said, Gallinari's been out. Um, but I, to me, those are just you know inexcusable losses for a team that's, that has the type of aspirations that they have. Yep. So uh, part of the reason why, well, the main reason I wanted to talk about them is do we think they're a playoff team? Because uh, we talked about this in our season preview. It seems like there's a mandate for them to make the playoffs, especially on that front office. They obviously started really well, but I think a lot of the same issues that were there are still there. And if Trey Young isn't going to shoot 17 free throws a game like he was early in the season, then they're going to start to struggle a little bit more offensively. <laughs> I, I, I don't think he's going to keep shooting 17 free throws a game unless he's the greatest foul drawer in the history of the league. Right. They obviously do have a historically great op or not historically great right now, but one of the better offenses in the league. And I think Trey is the type of guy that can lead that. Um, but as soon as those free throw numbers come down, they'll drop back to the pack a little bit. And I still don't think very much of them defensively. They played some really bad teams and they're still 17th in defensive rating. Like they, they played some bad teams to start the season. And I think that was a lot of the reason they looked good. Um, so, I mean, do we think they're a playoff team at this point? Well, it's, the, the trouble for Atlanta is that all the other teams in the East look really good. I mean, yeah, you know, people know. were hoping that people were wonder, hoping that Indy would fall out. Indy looks really good. Look you know, yeah, yeah it, like, you know, Philly looks really good. Boston has kind of got it together in the last few games. Toronto has fallen out, but it's like you got to figure they're going to figure something out or make a move or something. There's a the secret of a coach, yeah. Yeah, so like the problem there is is everyone else is so good, and I, I my gut tells me that they'll get in just because I, they have enough good basketball players on the roster that I think they'll get in, and yeah, and it's it's clear that their their organizational goal is there, you know, and it, right now all these teams are trying, but because of the the depth at the top of next year's draft. There's going to be a point sometime 30 games into the season or so where a bunch of these teams uh, that are at the bottom of the East in particular and a couple teams in the bottom of the West are going to kind of let their foot off the gas and let this thing slip away. And when they do, you know, guess what's going to happen? Like you're, you're just going to start getting some easy wins on that Eastern Conference schedule. And teams like Atlanta just have so much talent and they're young enough that they're just going to clean house in those games. Yeah. I mean, you'd think they did just drop a couple of really winnable ones. Yep. Um, uh but yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I tend to think that there's enough talent offensively on that team to carry them in a weak Eastern Conference at the bottom, and yeah. and and find a way in. But yeah, like I, I think I think I explicitly said uh, in my last podcast that you know I I had I had a hard time believing that the Atlanta Hawks and the Cleveland Cavaliers were going to be the best teams best teams in the league by the end. So I, this some of this was kind of to be expected. Yeah, I mean, where do so. I'm I'm still a Luca over Trey guy, but I think that conversation is a lot closer than it has been in the past. Like Trey has looked amazing this year, and Luca obviously hasn't. I think Luca's probably out of shape. Luca's playing crazy. himself into shape, yeah, and he had to play in the bubble. Trey didn't. There's some other yeah, stuff going on that's there. That's true. That's true. I didn't even think about that, but I don't know, man. I, as a guy who's been pretty low on Trey, um, I'm starting to think he might prove me wrong because he he is just a ridiculously talented offensive player. He can literally do whatever he wants with the ball. He draws, Ooh. like I'm saying, he drops thousand historic rate. He's an incredible shooter from deep even though the percentages aren't there you have to guard him out to 30 feet because he will shoot it he's an incredible passer uh it's, it it really is going to come down to does he ever learn how to play defense because if he does that guy's going to lead top five offenses for 15 years mm-hmm. yeah. um so <laughs> the last thing we'll end with today is uh, a comment from uh Uh-oh. from matt john That's um, my brother it's your brother okay so tommy's <laughs> brother says that Tommy's a fake Steph fan and that world peace is not attainable while he's still on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Love you too, buddy. <laughs> uh, 
Anyway, uh, thank you guys so much for joining us. Like I said uh, uh, at the beginning of the show, the idea here is that at least once a week we'll have Tommy on. We'll talk uh, about all this NBA stuff. Um, God knows that we're going to have plenty of interesting things to talk about over the course of the year. And then I'll mix that in with some Lakers-specific stuff uh, with some other guys. But, Tommy, I really appreciate your time, and I really appreciate you uh, uh, committing to do this with me. I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Always fun, man. Always fun. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having me on. All right, man. I'll see you next week. All right. Later. Bye.